The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, I want to talk to you this morning about was the parousia delayed? You know, I think that anyone who was a serious student of the Bible. Do I need to qualify that? Okay, yeah, I guess I do. A serious student of the Bible. By that I mean someone who takes the Bible seriously. You read it on a regular basis. You read through it every year. You think through it as you're reading. You spend time in there. When I say a serious student of the Bible, I'm not talking about somebody who reads our daily bread, okay, once a day, it's a half a verse, and then somebody comments on that half a verse, I'm talking about someone who's immersing themselves in the Word of God. Because if you do that, sooner or later you're going to realize there is a problem with Yeshua's prediction about His second coming. I mean, you're just going to run into that and you're going to say, wait a minute, He just kept saying it was soon. But that was 2,000 years ago. See, almost all mentions of the parousia are connected with a time statement, a time reference. It's coming soon. For example, let's jump to the last book, Revelation, because everybody loves Revelation. You know, it's all about the future, right? No, it's not. Let's look at the first verse, Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Yeshua the Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to people if they think this was written today. All right. This book was written 2,000 years ago. This book was not written to you. This book was written in the first chapter. It tells us to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and then it names the churches. It's to them, and it's to tell them, to show them the things that will soon take place. Verse 3 has a time statement in it. Let's jump to the last chapter. 22.6, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take... Again, He starts it with this. He ends it with this. Now, there's a lot of time statements in the end here. Look at verse 7. Behold, I'm coming soon. Again, He's not talking to us. He's talking to an audience in the first century that was suffering persecution, and He's telling them, hang on, I'm coming soon. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. You think he's trying to tell them something? If Yeshua didn't return soon, as he said he would in the first century, something is wrong. Something's wrong. And... A theologian, a scholar, Hayes, tries to deal with this problem in his book that was published on June 1st, 2016. He's going to fix us. He's going to help us understand this whole thing. The book is entitled, When the Son of Man Didn't Come. Okay? A constructive proposal on the delay of the parousia. So Hayes says it was delayed. So that's why we're talking about that today. Was it delayed? This book is written by Christopher Hayes. He's currently professor of New Testament at the Biblical Seminary of Columbia. This is a scholarly approach, they tell us, to understanding these things. Let me blow this book up so you can see it. When the Son of Man didn't come. Okay, a constructive proposal of the delay of the parousia. So from the title, I'm sure you can tell... He doesn't believe the Lord kept His word. He doesn't believe when He said soon, He meant soon. But He's going to explain to us why. All right, Hayes writes this, The basic reason there is debate about the delay of Christ's return is that Jesus told the first century generation of His disciples that He would be back before the last of that crew kicked the bucket. That's right. Okay, He did say that. See, Hayes gets that. He told the first generation of his disciples, the ones that walk with them, talk with them, the one he lived with, he told them he was coming back. All right? And then Hayes quotes Mark 9 1. He said to them, Truly I say to you, 
There's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then Hayes adds, Mark 13, 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, all these things, Hayes says, apparently including the reference to the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. So he sees there's a problem. He says, in light of that promise, he adjured them again and again to keep alert, keep awake, keep awake. For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes, Matthew 10, 23. So, I mean, he gets it, right? Well, he says, admittedly, he said that nobody would know the hour of the day of his return. But in general terms, Jesus definitely prophesied that he would be back before the end of the first century. And since we're still here, it seems like he was pretty wrong. All right? He, he definitely, see, Hayes gets it. He says, listen, he sees that they'd be back, but he was, seems like he was wrong. Now, don't, don't criticize him yet. Hang on. He's going to try to fix this. I think he just gets deeper. But Hayes goes on to say, obviously, scholars have suggested other solutions other than he was wrong. Thank, thank you, I'm glad some scholars can do that. He says, but none have struck me as satisfying. N.T. Wright, for example, and he quotes Wright out of The Victory of God, has made the very attractive argument that the coming of the Son of Man language in Mark 13 refers to Jesus' enthronement in heaven after his death rather than his final descent to earth in judgment. So he's saying, N.T. Wright's got a good suggestion here. He's not even talking about his coming. All right, no, Wright is wrong. Okay. He says, it's an intriguing possibility, since Mark definitely alludes to Daniel 7.13, in which one like the Son of Man coming is indeed enthroned in heaven. However, Mark 8.35-38 indicates that the coming of the Son of Man is a coming in judgment, so he sees that, rather than ascending to rule in heaven after his death. The same idea of judgment seems pretty clear in Luke 12, Matthew 24, Mark 8, Mark 13, say that his coming in judgment is supposed to occur within a generation. See, Hayes is getting this, all right? He's getting it. And he says, so insofar as I don't think that the judgment transpired during the first century. Now listen to what he's saying here. He's saying judgment didn't transpire. He, he's talking about coming in judgment, and in the first century, no judgment happened, right? I mean, what? What about the destruction of Jerusalem? The Jewish city, the Jewish temple, where God lived. How about that being totally destroyed? He doesn't see that as playing any connection with the coming of Christ. It's funny because Christ seemed to connect those things. Now Hayes goes on to say, well, let me go back here. He says, it's hard to take refuge in Wright's thesis. Okay, I agree with him there. It still seems like Jesus miscalculated when he foretold that he would return before the first generation of apostles died. All right? So he kind of just, the calculation wasn't quite right. So Hayes goes on to say, if Jesus' prophecy about the timing of the kingdom's coming was not fulfilled, then isn't this Christianity thing really just all wrong? Yes, he's right. He is very right there. If this is not right... If, if all this stuff that Yeshua said about coming soon, coming to that generation, coming with us to your life, if that didn't happen, then Christianity is wrong. It's a joke, and we all need to just walk away because the founder of Christianity was mistaken. See, if he's mistaken about that, and that's what people don't seem to get, time is important. And if Yeshua was wrong then is he God? Can he save us? Is there any value to Christianity? See, liberal scholars have seen this years ago and attacked Christianity. Christ said he was coming soon. I think they're smart enough to at least see that. Most Christians don't even get that. Most Christians today say, yeah, soon. And they sing, he's coming again, coming again. Maybe morning, maybe evening. Maybe soon. Wait a minute, maybe soon? He said it was soon. Now you're questioning what he said. Maybe soon. No, it's soon, but you keep singing soon and he doesn't come. All right? Hayes goes on to say, 
about isn't this Christianity thing really wrong? Well, no, actually. You see, he's going to explain now. He's going to fix it, okay? Even though Jesus did prophesy that he would return before the first generation of disciples expired. You get that? He sees it. He said he was coming back before they expired. All right? Hang on. All right? He sees that. That's great. He says this. The important thing to remember is that Jesus was making a prophecy, and prophecies do not purport to forecast fixed future events. Yeah. This is a scholar writing, okay? So he, well, let me, he prof, he's telling us, Yeshua did prophesy this, but, you know, prophecy is like, well, it's flexible, it's elastic, you can do what you want with it. He goes on to say, prophecies are by their nature conditional. A prophesied outcome may or may not transpire. It all depends on how the audience responds to the message of the prophet. Perhaps the problem of the delay of the parousia is us. He just fixed it. See? Because Yeshua said it was coming soon. And if he's wrong, Christianity's wrong. But see, he wasn't wrong because it's up to us. And the reason the Lord didn't come back soon like he said he would is because of us. See, we didn't do something and the prophecies depended on us. And so, okay, at least Yeshua's off the hook. Now the hook's on. Now we're to blame. All right? See, he sees all Yeshua's statements about the second coming as conditional prophecies, which aren't meant to be predictions of the future. They're all dependent on us. Now, so let's talk about prophecy for a minute. In talking about prophecy, we need to make a distinction between foretelling and forthtelling. See, not all prophecy is foretelling, i.e. predictive in its nature. I think often we think of prophecy, that's what we think of. This is predictive, this is telling us what's going to happen. All right? Biblical, biblical prophecy can be divided into two types, conditional and predictive. Conditional prophecy is when the prophecy's fulfillment is dependent on the compliance of those to whom the promise was made, with the conditions on which it was given. That's right. Deuteronomy 28 would be a prime example, right? Blessings, cursing. If you, I will. If you, I don't. Okay? Blessing and cursing. First 15 verses are blessing. The whole rest of it is all cursing. All right? That's conditional prophecy. Predictive prophecy is one in which there's no condition. Okay, a prophecy from God that will come to pass exactly as prophesied, no matter what humans do or say. Now, Hayes says, the book of Jeremiah comes closest to giving us a model for how predictive prophecy works. And it's rather different than the predictive future mode. Now, here's the problem here. In this text, he uses Jeremiah as an example of conditional prophecy. But he's calling it predictive prophecy. But it's not. It's an example of conditional. There's conditions here. Let's look at the text he uses. Jeremiah 18, 5-10. Then the word of Yahweh came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares Yahweh. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, so you see, if, there's a condition here, but if that, I'm predicting judgment, but if you turn, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plan it, And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then, so you see, we got an if and then, if they do it, then I will do this, of good that I have intended to do to it. So Yahweh says, I will do this unless you do this. Then I'll do this, okay? So we see here that some prophecies in the Bible, they're conditional. This is especially true with reference to predictions that contain warnings of independent judgment, impending judgment that come upon wicked peoples. See, the doom prophetically announced was dependent upon whether or not the nation would turn from its evil. For example, when Jonah went to the city of Nineveh, he announces, 
Jonah began to go to the city, crying a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, is Jonah a false prophet? That didn't happen. But he's saying it's going to, you know, well, it's conditional. And how do you know that? Well, because we see when Nineveh repented in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of his disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. So God relented. He withdrew the judgment, and he didn't destroy them. That's exactly why Jonah didn't want to go. That's exactly why. God, I, God, I know you're merciful and loving and kind, and I hate Ninevites. I don't want them saved. I want them dead. And so he goes, and you know, God does what he was afraid he would do, and these people turn, and God repents of the judgment. All right? Similarly, when God promised the Israelites the land of Cana would be their inheritance, the pledge was contingent on their faithfulness to Yahweh. Note the testimony of Joshua 23. If you transgress the covenant of Yahweh your God, which He commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that He has given you. All right? If then... Listen, the Hebrew nation apostatized and they lost their special privilege with Yahweh. Yeshua said to the Jewish leaders of His day, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Those Bible teachers and politicians today who argue for Israel's intrinsic right to the Palestinian territory Overlook the truth of Scripture. That was promised to them if they obeyed. They didn't obey. So it was taken away from them. So there is biblical prophecy that is conditional. But on the other hand, some prophecies are absolute. They're not conditional. Remember, Hayes lumps them all in the conditional category. That's the only way he can deal with this. Okay, Look at Acts 11, 27-28. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. All right? He's foretelling of a famine, and then Luke adds, this took place in the days of Claudius. So, in other words, this happened. You, do you see any conditions in that prophecy? No. But Hayes says prophecies are by their nature conditional. Not all of them. He tries to lump all prophecies into the conditional class, but that doesn't fit with Scripture. There are many predictive prophecies in Scripture. The mission of Josiah was foretold more than three centuries before his birth. The role of the Persian king Cyrus in releasing the Hebrews from Babylonian captivity was described more than a century and a half before his reign ever took place. Isaiah 44.28 says, Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd! This is a pagan king. And he says, he's my shepherd. Why? Because he's doing what I need him to do. All right? He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and the temple, your foundation, shall be laid. God laid this out a long time ago. This is not conditional. How about Daniel's description of the Babylonian, the media Persia, the Greek, and the Roman empires? They're nothing short of miraculous. These are not conditional. Then there's the matter of messianic prophecy. You know, of the more than 800 prophecies in the Tanakh, at least 300 center on the coming of Christ. Predictions concerning the coming Messiah, they're not predicated on human response. If you people do this, then I'll do this. No, he doesn't say any of that, okay? They're fulfilled with amazing accuracy. The Messiah was to be the seed of a woman, Genesis 3.15. The offspring of Abraham, Genesis 22. From the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. Born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. In the town of Bethlehem, Micah 5. There was nothing conditional about these statements. He didn't say, if you guys really be good, I won't need to send Yeshua. Sometimes prophets spoke for God rather than predicting the future. They're just giving a conditional thing. For instance, not everything Isaiah said was predictive. 
So prophets gave present and future truth, but when they spoke about the future, how accurate were they to be? 99? No. 100%. How do you, why such a high standard? Because God doesn't make mistakes, and if he's working for God, guess what? He'll get it right, right? Well, let's look at Deuteronomy 18. I will rise up for them a prophet. He's talking to Moses about com- the coming of Christ. He says, for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. All right, I'm going to put my words in his mouth. This is speaking of Yeshua, and he calls him a prophet, and this is what a prophet is. The prophet is the mouthpiece of God. He's speaking for Yahweh. So if he's speaking for God, he should be pretty accurate, right? God doesn't make too many mistakes. None, okay? (laughs) He goes on in Deuteronomy 18, And whoever will not listen to my words that I shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. All right, I don't want, you know, in Israel, the prophets who speak for me better speak for me. They're, they're going to die. And if you say in your heart, well, how do we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken? I mean, so the people are like, huh? Okay, how do we know this guy's from God and this guy's not from God? How do we tell the difference, Lord? we got false prophets. When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that word that Yahweh has not spoken. That prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Okay? If the word does not come to pass or come true, it's not from God. And so God would give them these short-term things so they could test the prophets and make sure, yeah, this prophet's accurate. He said this would happen, that would happen. He's to be 100% accurate or he's to die because they're the mouth of God. In Isaiah 41, a challenge is issued to the false gods. He says this, tell us what is to come hereafter. In other words, can you tell us the future? Because you're God, you should be able to do that, right? Tell us what's coming about that we may know that you're gods. That's how we'll tell. You're predicting the future is coming to pass, right? The design of predictive prophecy was to establish the credibility of God and the credibility of God's men and also the authenticity of his scripture. He predicted things, they happened exactly like he said. Now, if Yeshua was wrong about when his parousia would happen, He's a false prophet. Because it's not just the incident of what's going on, it's when it's going on. He gave a time statement very clearly every time he talked about it's coming. Hayes writes, this is kind of a trip for 21st century believers because we tend to think the second coming of Christ is as being firmly scheduled on the celestial calendar. But that's definitely not what the New Testament authors all claim. People, if you tend to think of the second coming of Christ as being firmly scheduled on a celestial calendar, you're absolutely right. But if you're like Hayes and think it's not, you're wrong, okay? You're wrong. I think that a study in biblical typology will show that Hayes is very wrong about the second coming being firmly scheduled. In other words, like, I'm coming out there somewhere, don't really know when, it depends on you people. If you behave, I'll come quicker, if you don't behave, I'm going to drag it out, you know. No, where do they, a type is defined as an example of something future or more or less prophetic called the antitype. So you have a type picturing something and the antitype is the fulfillment of that. A simpler description of a type might be a pictorial prophecy. For example, Melchizedek was both king of Salem and a priest of God, prophetically symbolizing the Son of God who rules as our king and serves as our high priest. Uh, Jonah's three-day confinement in the belly of the great fish was a pictorial prediction of Christ's three-day entombment and his resurrection from the dead. Typology is a form of prophecy, pictured, acted out. And when we examine the types of the feasts of Israel, 
we see that contrary to what Hayes says, the second coming of Christ was firmly scheduled on God's celestial calendar. It was The date was circled, okay, by God. It had nothing to do with human actions. When you study the Feasts of Yahweh, you will see that there's seven of them. If you go to Leviticus 23, you see they're listed in chronological order. They are Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, Day of Atonement, and tabernacles. Israel was to go through these seven feasts every year. They were, it's an acted out play like showing the Israelites what God's going to do. He said, Here's what I'm going to do in the future. You just keep going through this and you'll have it in your head. You'll know when it shows up. And they didn't. All right. But the feasts are a study of typology. The feasts of the Lord actually convey two 40 year Exodus periods. A type, the first Exodus was a type. And then the anti-type. The first Exodus period is when Israel was removed from the bondage of Egypt at Passover. They were put in the wilderness on a physical journey to a physical promised land. And most people understand that. But the more important is the anti-type. The spiritual Exodus. This Exodus runs from the cross to AD 70, which just happens to be another 40-year period. And in this Exodus, Israel, after the Spirit, left the bondage of the law and sin and death and begins a 40-year spiritual journey to a spiritual inheritance, the kingdom of God, or the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the typical significance of the Passover is very clear in New Testament writings. I mean, anyone will bring up the the significance of Passover and, and its typology. I think there's probably no Mosaic institution that is a more perfect type than this. Exodus 12, 6 says, and you show, talking about the lamb that you, you know, take this unblemished lamb, you pick one out, you know, perfect little lamb, and you keep it until the 14th. You bring it in your house on the 10th, you keep it until the 14th day of this month, all right? When the whole assembly of the congregation in Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight. So the first Passover, when they're getting ready to leave Egypt, the Passover was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan. They killed the lamb, they put the blood on the doorpost, all right? Just as God had told them, beginning the exodus out of Egypt. Then almost 2,000 years later, Yeshua is crucified on the 14th of Nisan, beginning the second exodus. So the first and second exodus, the type and the anti-type, both began on the Passover. And as we're looking at the trial in, in the Gospel of John right now, they're, you know the leaders of Israel crying to crucify their Lord, they're putting the Lord on the cross at the very hour they're sacrificing the Passover lambs, and they don't even get it. They don't connect it at all. These are four spring feasts. These begin the 40 years, okay? Passover. Unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost. These four feasts, they're a prophetic, prophetic shadowing of the first coming of Christ. All right? The first coming, they spoke of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the advent of the new covenant, all of which happened on the exact days of these feasts. First fruits, celebrated resurrection. Guess when Christ rose from the dead? On the feast of first fruit. The Israelites are in the temple waving their fruits to the Lord and first fruits, and the Lord's tomb is empty. Pentecost, the church is born. Then the remaining three feasts were the fall feast. These happened at the very end of the 40 years. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, they took about 52 days from start to finish. That began the 40 years. Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Tabernacles, 15 days at the very end of the 40 years. All right, they foreshadowed the second coming. These, the fall feast, Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Tabernacles, they started about four months after the end of the spring feast. So you had these four months in Israel calendar where nothing was basically happening. All three of the fall feasts feast took place in Tishri, which would be late August, September on our calendar. 
These three feasts speak of resurrection, the consummation of redemption after the outpouring of God's wrath, and the new heaven and new earth. You ever wondered why on God's celestial calendar the Day of Atonement comes at the end? Shouldn't it start out there? No, because it doesn't happen until the Lord comes back. Atonement is not complete until the second coming. Now between Pentecost and Tabernacles, there's an interval of time of about four months. All right. Now like I said, these beginning feasts start the calendar, these 40 years. The, the, end, the other ones, the fall feasts, end the 40 years. This four-month gap, though, was a picture of the 40-year exodus. Just as the children of faith were allowed to enter into the temporal land of rest the first time, the children of faith in the generation directly following the cross of Christ were given entrance into the eternal land of rest. With each covenant, the old and the new, a 40-year transition period followed the initial act of deliverance into the entrance of the promised land. What event ended the first Exodus period? The children are wandering for 40 years. What event ended that Exodus? What? Okay, Jericho. The destruction of the city of Jericho. Because Jericho stood at the entrance of the promised land. Right? Here's the land, but guess what? There's this fortified city there. It represents a serious challenge to Israel's claim to the land. Well, it's fall. People just marching around and then blowing trumpets and the whole thing collapses. And guess what? These people in Jericho were already scared to death when they showed up. Because what did Rahab say? We heard what Yahweh has done. We know about your God. We've heard his stories. And they were afraid to death already. So can you imagine they blow a trumpet and everything falls down there just like, we give up. We quit. This is crazy. Well, the fall telegraphed a message to all the world that Yahweh, these were Yahweh's people, was the Lord of these people. Let me ask you this. What event marked the end of the second exodus? Another city collapsed. Another fortified city. This time it was Jerusalem. Picture, just like Jericho. See, Old Covenant Judaism was a major problem to early believers. They were the ones persecuting the believers. Nothing represented the old system better than the temple. Here was where the presence of God dwelt. His presence assured them they were His people. But 40 years after the cross, in AD 70, believers fled the city of Jerusalem and the walls fell and the city was destroyed and burned. Similar to the collapse of the walls in Jericho, the fall of Jerusalem's walls symbolized entrance of the redeemed into the God's everlasting kingdom. The believers were vindicated and revealed as the sons of God while judgment fell on the Jewish system which had rejected God as king. So the feasts of Israel are prophetic type and they give us an exact timeline. Death, resurrection, second coming of Christ. So Hayes is way off when he says this is kind of a trip to 21st century believers because we tend to think of the second coming of Christ as being firmly scheduled on a celestial calendar. But that's definitely not what the New Testament authors claim. He's wrong. It was scheduled. And it came about just as it was scheduled. Let's look at uh, one of Yahweh's prophecies about His second coming. In Luke 21, 5 and 6. And while some were speaking of the temple... All right, that's what we're talking about, the temple in Jerusalem. How it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. All right, talking about the temple, and they're admiring the beauty, and he goes, You know what? It's all going to be just rubble thrown to the ground. That's an incredible prophecy. That had to shock them quite a bit. I don't see any conditions there, okay? No conditions. But it would have shocked them because the building of the temple were magnificent. How could anything possibly happen to this edifice? See, the stones themselves of this building were huge. They were as long as 60 to 67 feet, seven and a half to nine feet high and wide. Listen, this area was prone to earthquakes. So when Herod rebuilt this temple, he made it earthquake-proof. 
Alright? He did. To the Jewish people, there was nothing like this building in the whole world. There was such reference for the temple, even in distant parts, that one would scarcely dare to imagine this thing could be destroyed. How could that possibly even happen? So the disciples asked, they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? In other words, the temple's really going to all be thrown down. It's going to all become rubble. When? All three synoptic gospels ask the question, when? Matthew 24, 3, tell us when these things. Mark 13, 4, tell us when. Luke 27, tell us when. When these things, that these things refers to the temple's destruction that he just got done telling them about in verse 5. The disciples are talking about the temple buildings in verse 6. He says, all these things shall be destroyed. It should be clear that they're asking when the temple will be destroyed. When will our house be left desolate? After all Yeshua had just said about the judgment on Jerusalem and about not one stone being left upon another, that's kind of crazy. I mean, even if you destroy and a temple, you're not going to tear everything down. Why would you tear every stone down and throw it down? Why would you do that? They did do it. So this makes sense. When is, when is this going to happen? The second part of their question is where things get really interesting, I think. The disciples ask, what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? Okay, it's going to happen. How do we know? When will we know this? See, in Matthew's account, they say this. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Because see, they connected all these events. To help us understand the question, we need to compare all the synoptics. What will be the sign? See, in Matthew he says, what will be the sign of your coming? Well, he's, wait a minute, he's talking about a temple being destroyed. Because when the Lord comes, they, he's going to destroy the temple. And of the end of the age, because the Jewish age is going to end when that happens. No more temple, no more Jewish age. So that's the question. Now, comparing all three accounts... We see that the disciples considered his coming and the end of the age to be identical events with the destruction of the temple. That's why I said when he says, I don't, I don't see any judgment happening in the first century. I'm like, what? what it, I mean, he's got to know about AD 70 in Jerusalem. Okay, he's a scholar. I hope he knows that. What is that consi- considered? 13.4 says, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now notice in the first part of this verse, he says, when will these things be? Referring to the temple's destruction. Then in the second half, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? The sign of his coming in the end of the age was the same as the these things, which referred to the destruction of Jerusalem, which we know happened in AD 70. They're not separate questions that can be divided up into different events. The disciples had one thing and one thing only on their mind. The destruction of the temple that he just pointed out, everything's going to be thrown down. And with that destruction, they connected the end of the age and the coming of Messiah. Now, Matthew 23, what will be the sign of your coming? And the word coming there is parousia, which means arrival... Now listen, let me get technical here for a minute. It doesn't mean return. You hear parousia, you hear the coming of Christ, and you think he's, we think right about it, he's returning. The disciples wouldn't have been asking about a future return of Christ because they had no idea he was leaving. All right, we've been going through the Gospel of John. You know how confused the disciples were, okay? They believed that Yeshua was the promised Messiah. They believed the Messiah would come and the Messiah would rule. They had no idea of Him coming, leaving, and coming again. Yeshua talked to them about His death and going to the Father. They were like, what are you talking about? They didn't get it at all. Let's look at John 6, 16. A little while, you will see Me no longer. And again, a little while, and you'll see Me. And some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that He says to us? In other words, what's He talking about? We don't get it. This account in John takes place after he had given them the Olivet Discourse. And they still didn't understand that he was leaving them. After the crucifixion, they still didn't understand he was going to rise from the dead. Now let me ask you a question. If they had no idea that Yeshua was going to leave them, why would they ask about his return? They didn't understand anything about a second coming. 
You might ask, well, why'd they ask what will be the sign of your coming if they didn't think he was leaving? Good question. I'm glad you asked because I wanted to explain it, all right? The answer is in understanding the Jewish concept of parousia, parousia. I said the word meant arrival or presence, not return. It didn't refer to any future return of Christ. The to the disciples, the parousia of the Son of Man signified the full manifestation of His Messiahship. His glorious appearing in power. All right, he's, he's on the earth, he's walking around, he's very humble. They want him, all right, when are you going to demonstrate your Messiahhood, that you're ruling over all this? When are you going to show us the, the power of your kingdom? William Barclay says of Perusia, in the regular, it is the regular word for the arrival of a governor into his province or for the coming of a king to his subjects. It regularly describes a coming in authority and power. So they're saying, when are you going to show us your power? They were accustomed to hear Yeshua speak of the coming kingdom, coming in glory and power, and that within their lifetime. So they're like, hey, they didn't know he's leaving, but they looked for a time when he would appear in full glory, bringing in the kingdom of God, rewarding every man. Now, you might ask, why would the disciples connect the destruction of the temple with Christ's parousia? Well, the disciples knew the Tanakh, right? They were familiar with their Bible, and they knew that the destruction of Jerusalem would usher in the Messianic kingdom. Zechariah 14, 1-5, or let's look at Daniel 9.26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. See, the disciples believe that the coming of Messiah would be simultaneous with the destruction of the city and the temple. He's going to destroy it. It's going to be wiped out. Back to Luke. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Ah, well, we could probably figure that out, right? Look at all those armies around here. We're in trouble. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is counterintuitive, people, because if you're in Jerusalem, you're in a fortress. The temple was a fortress. Why would we leave this fortress? There's armies out there. That wouldn't be safe. And those who are inside the city, depart. And let those who are out in the country not enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. See, Yeshua predicted that this massive temple would be utterly destroyed in an act of God's judgment. At this time that this was spoken, no event was probably more improbable in their minds. Yet all this happened in AD 70 exactly as Yeshua said it would. After the city was taken, Josephus says that Titus gave orders that the soldiers should dig up even the foundations of the temple and also the city itself. Dig it up. Just they tore the, every brick out, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Micah 3.12, Therefore, because of you, Zion, shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. See, by, by reading the surrounding verses in Luke, you cannot deny that this is a parallel account to Mark and Matthew's Olivet Discourse. And parallel accounts can't have different meanings. By combining Luke's statement with secular history, it's clear that Cestius Gallus and his Roman army were the judgment of God on Jerusalem. And that shouldn't surprise anybody, because if you're familiar with the Tanakh, God always came in judgment. He said, my presence will be known in judgment. And it was the Assyrians who did it. Or it was the Babylonians who did it. But God said, I'm doing it. I'm, in, I'm present in the judgment. Same thing here. Yeshua is coming in judgment on Jerusalem through the Roman army. He's using them. Hayes says, Jesus himself recognizes that the timing of the kingdom's consummation is not set in stone. I disagree. And so did Yeshua. So I'm in good company. All right, because Yeshua said, truly I say to you, this generation, okay, <laughs> he's sitting there like I'm standing here talking to you people, all right, I've seen the meme on Facebook that I just think is awesome, because Yeshua's standing there and the crowd's out in front of him, and the, the little pop-up bubble, you know, over the window, the crowd says, so you mean all this stuff you're telling us has nothing to do with us, but it's somewhere far way out in the future, and Yeshua goes, yeah, that's right, <laughs> nothing to do with you people. I mean, that's ridiculous, but we don't see how ridiculous it is. He's talking, he says, truly I say to you, the people that are sitting in front of him, 
this generation, this, not that. This is the near demonstrative, this generation. He could have said that generation. Then you would say, I wonder which one he talked about. Well, that one, not this one. But he says this one. And so it's really clear that he's talking to those people. There's no ifs here. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away unless, no, until all these things take place. All these things, what are all the things? Well, go back in the chapter. The gospel being preached to all the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the coming of the Son of Man. It, this verse is so clear that it troubles those who hold to a futurist eschatology. It troubles them. I mean, Schofield actually switched the Greek word here, generation. He said, it's this word. And I'm like, no, it's not. Why did you do that? That's a little deceptive, but he, you know, proved his point, so he was trying to keep his point proved, which to me is absolutely ludicrous. If you're trying to teach the Bible, just teach it for what it is. You know, don't make up, try to support your view. It's kind of foolish. Okay, so this generation, every time it's used in the New Testament, it always refers to some, this refers to something that is near in time or distance. Yeshua could have said that, but he didn't. He spoke of what was happening to them before they, until all these things. This generation, generation's 40 years. So 40 years are not going to transpire to all this stuff. And guess what happened? <laughs> the temple was destroyed within 40 years. A study of the Feast of Yahweh backs up the idea that the parousia happened in their generation. A study of the feast will show that the first four feasts were fulfilled exactly on the day of the shadows. So I would assume that the last three would be also, but because the canon was closed before the compilation of the last three feasts, we have no record of their fulfillment. What we know for sure was that they were to be fulfilled within the 40-year period, and that 40-year period began at Pentecost. Okay, So the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles take place in the seventh month. Now, number seven is the number of perfection and fullness, completeness. In these feasts, in these seven feasts, the believer is brought into the fullness of the Godhead. We see the spiritual antitype of the fall feasts in the fall of Jerusalem, the parousia of the Lord in AD 70, and that's at the blowing of the trumpet in Matthew 24. The scene was set, and Christ fulfilled the feast. Guess what month it was that Jerusalem fell? These fall feasts took place in September. Okay, You're going to guess September, Sharon? According to Josephus, Josephus said the city was taken on September 8th, AD 70, after the last siege had lasted about five months. That's Josephus, volume 1, page 467. He's a contemporary historian. This is when it fell. Wow, right during the fall feast? There's a lot of coincidences in this Bible, you know. The Feast of Tabernacle, the last feast, was to celebrate and commemorate the end of the wanderings in the desert of the children of Israel. So now it's commemorating the end of the sin, wandering and sin and death. Now we've reached the promised land of the new heavens and new earth. Secondly, it also was to, a celebration of their inheritance into the land of Canaan, the promised land. We've reached the promised land. See, the anti-typical fulfillment came at the end of the 40-year transition period. When the Old Covenant came to an end, the New Covenant was fully consummated, and the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth arrived, where, the Bible says, we tabernacle with God. See, people talk about fellowship with God, but according to the Bible, that doesn't happen until the Lord returns in the second coming, and then I will dwell with them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. So we're like living in something we don't have yet, but see, we know we have it. Tabernacle speaks of the final rest as well as the final harvest. Believers, Jerusalem fell in September of AD 70, fulfilling to the letter the prophecies of Yeshua. This judgment was synchronous with the coming of Christ, the end of the age. Yeshua's prophecies about His second coming were not conditional. The time statements were not flexible. Yeshua returned in the first century judgment on Jerusalem just as He said He would within that generation. He ended the old covenant. He consummated the new. And believers, we now live in the new heaven and earth, new earth, which is synonymous with the new covenant. 
totally fulfilled. We're not looking for anything to happen. We have it now. We enjoy it. So instead of trying to come up with ways to explain why Yeshua didn't keep His Word, maybe these scholars should just learn to take Him at His Word. Okay? Because guess what? Soon means soon. That's not hard to figure out. All right? But here's one thing they have to understand. Time defines nature. If He came soon, it wasn't a physical thing. It was a spiritual thing. And that's what the destruction of Jerusalem telegraphed. This is a spiritual event. God is done with the Old Covenant. He's moving into the New Covenant. All that old stuff is done. And people today are sitting around arguing, what about the law do we have to keep? What about the law do we have to obey? Do we have to do this? Do we have to do that? No! It's done. All done. Finished. Put away. Gone. We live in the New Covenant. But people keep dragging stuff from the Old Covenant into the New. You know what's preacher's favorite thing to drag into the New Covenant? Tithing. You got it. You got it. And I've talked to many preachers who said, oh, I think you're right. I don't think that's... And next week they're preaching on tithing again, okay? Why? Because they say it works. You know, we can't trust people to figure stuff out for themselves. Let me tell you something, people. Just as, you know, glory to God. When we started this church, it kind of freaked my wife out because I said, we're not taking an offering. Putting a box in the back. And she's like, oh, how are we going to live? I'm like, we're going to trust God. You know, I don't think, you know, I was in a Baptist church for years, and Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday school, Wednesday night, a plate got stuck in my face, you know, and you feel dumb just passing it by, so, you know, roll up a dollar bill, throw it in there, you know, it just kept, you feel guilty. So I said, we're not doing that, we're just going to put a box in the back. And to this day, you know, almost 22 years ago now for Berean Bible Church, it is, I, Kathy and I are absolutely blown away week by week, as we go to the mailbox and we receive checks from people we never heard of, we never met, just say, really love the ministry, want to help out. It is amazing. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And I don't, I teach against tithing. <laughs> I teach it's not biblical. But I'll tell you what is biblical. The Bible says you're to give if you're being taught. And, and I think people just, the Holy Spirit does amazing things in people's lives. We don't need to be the Holy Spirit. He does a way better job. And it's just, you know, he's good. He's a good God, and we just need to learn to take him at his word. But, you know, people, like these these scholars are stumbling over the word of God, trying to redefine things because they just say, he said he was coming, he didn't. He made a mistake. We got to fix it. Oh, he didn't really mean he was really coming. He meant he'd come if you did this. And it's just, people, his coming, his kingdom are spiritual. We are in it. I thank God He dwells with us now. We can fellowship with Him 24-7. We don't have to take an animal to a, to a temple and hope that God accepts us and get a little bit of time with Him. We, spend, we can spend all the time in the world we want with Him because He dwells with us. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, it is, it's exciting, Father, to me. Lord, will we just learn to trust You, Lord? I know that that's what You desire of us is our trust. So often we're caught up in the world where we're just... Father, forgive us. Help us to be immersed in your word, Lord, and to believe it. To trust you, Father, because you're worthy of all our trust. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.